All right, good morning again. Glad to be here with you all. I can say that here. That was one of the songs, that, like the church that I grew up at, we sang a lot of slow, sad songs all the time. <laughs> but yeah, the song leader had like five songs that were actually upbeat, and that was one of them. So it's like, you know, a good reminder <laughs> of those days. So thanks, Tyrone. Um, so we are in the middle of a six-week series about six questions leading up to Easter. Okay, Easter is right around the corner. And like I said, Easter is a big deal for us, and it's a big deal for the world. And, you know, typically in the Church of Christ, we like to say, well, we, we celebrate the resurrection every day. But it's really cool when the entire world stops and recognizes it, too. So I like to take this opportunity this Easter season to ask six questions about Jesus. And this is week three. The first week, we asked the question, who is Jesus? And the responses we could have had were many, right? We, we recognize there are a lot of answers to these questions that I'm asking, but we landed on Jesus is the capital M Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen man, God's chosen person to really and truly save humanity. Unlike David, unlike Saul, the lowercase Messiah's anointed ones, Jesus is the capital M Messiah, the anointed one of the Spirit who saves God's people. Last week, we asked the question, what did Jesus do, right? We had three things. I, I forgot for a second. Um, what did Jesus do? We, we, we recognized that Jesus often, he would preach, teach, and he would heal. And all these different things come together to kind of bring this message about who he is and what his plans are with the world, right? The, the healings, even in and of themselves, they seem different to the preaching and teaching, but they were just another facet to his teaching arsenal, Right? He taught through parables. He taught hard teachings. He spoke with authority, all to reveal God's plan for humanity, right? which is to rescue them through Jesus, his son. So today we're going to ask another question. You might be kind of getting the understanding of where these six questions are coming from. We ask who, what, and today we're asking where. Okay, Where did Jesus go on earth? But before we get there, I want to talk about the Oregon Trail. Okay, Very normal segue. You might have never played this game. I love the Oregon Trail. I always say Oregon, Oregon. I don't know which, what it's right. Uh, but it was on the computer. My sister and I would play a lot, and it was really fun. Uh, you would try to get your family to Oregon safely. Unfortunately, along the way, you would die of dysentery. Uh, you, you, you get a snake bite, and your child would die. And, and you're, you're trying to ford these dangerous rivers, and you just want to get your, your family from point A to point B. And it was a really fun computer game. But as I've done my research this week, the Oregon Trail was not fun at all, okay? This is a painting, okay? I was trying to capture the essence of the Oregon Trail, but the essence is that it was a long, long journey. It's about 2,000 miles of very harsh, very taxing journey. You have these images here of these wagons. And in my mind, you know, on the Oregon Trail video game, they have these long, big wagons. That's not the case. Right? A lot of these wagons were basically wagons they took from their farms and then just fashioned a hoop around. And I learned that the wagons themselves would hold about 2,000 pounds total. So you're picking up your entire family and moving across the country in this wagon. You can bring very little. And guess what? Typically, 1,800 pounds of that was food and, like, resources. So you don't have very much for anything else. And in my mind, when I played the Oregon Trail video game, the kids would just ride in the back of the wagon and kind of chill and take a nap or whatever. 
That was not the case. A lot of times the people would walk the entire journey because the wagons didn't have suspension, right? They didn't have, you know, springs to make it less bumpy. It was probably awful to ride in the back of one of these wagons. Okay, and not only ride in one of these wagons, but sometimes you had to get your wagon across really, really tough rivers. And a lot of people would lose a lot of their stuff. And it's not like you could call it AAA, right? You couldn't say, oh, we're stuck here off route, grassy knoll, right? I don't know what it might be. But if your stuff broke, it was broken, okay? Your wheel was broken. You were hoping that maybe somebody in your, in your pack could help you out because you're probably going to be stranded there. And even today, there are remains from the Oregon Trail. I've heard that if you fly a plane over, you can still see the ruts in the ground from the wagons going towards Oregon. And I asked myself the question, why are these people going to Oregon? I've, I went to the West Coast once when I was younger, and I don't know what's so special about Oregon, but apparently there was this thing that was going on where they were getting a lot of free land in order to go plant crops in the western part of the United States. 162 acres, I think that is. That's about the size of the Dallas Cowboys football arena plus the parking space twice. That's a lot of land, right? And that, that is a lot of, of future potential for your family to grow and to do stuff with that land. And so you have this long and arduous journey. You have a lot of people dying along the way. And as people are going, you're knowing that they're dying along the way, right? It's very dangerous but the reward is worth the journey. And I kind of asked myself the question, why would they go on this journey? And this is what I kind of got to. The prospect of a better life was worth risking it all, okay? This idea that I could die in this cramped, confined city over here in the east, I'm going to die here young anyway. Why not take my family, go west, and I might die along the way, but I'm going to die here anyway. If I get there, my family will have a future. If I get there, I might have the ability to prosper in a new and exciting way. I have to make this journey because the prospect of a better life is worth risking it all. Okay? We're going to return to that. We're going to talk about the Oregon Trail later. But today we're going to be in Luke chapter 8 if you have your Bibles. So open up there if you want to follow along. I'll have it up on the screen here. We have a little bit of a lengthier section of text this morning, so I'll read it as you follow along in your Bibles. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the, did I skip something there? Okay, yeah. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been, had been driven uh, by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus reportedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. 
And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So this is one of those stories that you grow up reading that I don't want to be a part of. Okay? If I was Jesus' disciple, I would take the job of watching the boat. Okay, you go take care of that. I will stay with our stuff. Because that seems a little bit stressful to me. Jesus makes all of these situations seem more stressful to people like me. But also, Jesus has a way of entering these situations, these very complex situations, and making them calm again. Right? We read about him calming the storm, literally having the ability to stop a storm from happening. Jesus enters these situations all the time and makes them right. And this town had a problem, and Jesus comes to this town and confronts this problem. Now, we don't know everything, but it doesn't seem like this is a new problem. This didn't happen this week, okay? Let's look together here at Luke 8, 27b. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs, okay? This is not new. He has been without family, without resources, without clothing on his back for some time now, and the town has gotten used to it. Okay, also here in Luke 8, 29b. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. This is something that not only has been going on for some time, but there is a, a, a strategy that the community has devised to make sure that this man is kept in check, right? Look here. He is chained hand and foot and kept under guard. This demon-possessed man is creating jobs for this community. That's what I read here, okay? There are people that are assigned to this man to make sure that he doesn't enter the town, okay? And not only are they, are they assigned to chain him hand and foot, but there are people watching to make sure that he's not going anywhere. He is like the sheep herder for one guy, okay? Standing guard over him at all times. The community decided what to do and have, have just decided that he is unwanted. We do not want this man around us. He is dangerous. We want him out of sight and out of mind, okay? Someone has to be there to watch over this man. Unfortunately, we don't know more about the whole situation, but it seems to be taken care of, okay? He, like I said, he is out of sight and out of mind. This is a normal aspect of life. We stay here. He stays there. We do not cross over into his territory so we don't see him and have to acknowledge what's going on within our town. This is normal. And their uh, response to a normal state is this, okay? Once Jesus goes and he talks to this man and the demons are driven out of this man and the people venture off into this area that they don't normally go into, their response to seeing this man is this, in his right mind. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the, de the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in, his right, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's interesting, right? 
it's interesting because I believe that the same feeling that they're having right now, this fear, is the exact same feeling that drove them to put him out of sight, out of mind in the first place, right? We are a fearful of this man, and we have to do something about it. Now that he's in his right mind, now that he's clothed and sitting and not being crazy, that's scary too. This fear is circulating in and among these people. Their actions are driven by fear. And what I take away from this is that fear is extremely powerful. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Fear has the ability to do things to us that we did not think were possible. We make ideas and actions seem justifiable due to our fear in our own minds. Mental gymnastics, right? If I don't do this, therefore this will happen. If I do happen to do this, therefore this will happen. And we have these things going through our mind all driven by the same current of fear. And we read this passage about this man who's chained up, stood guard over, and we think to ourselves, we could never do that, right? We could never, ever, ever put somebody in a position like that to where they are alone, naked, and and, and just not in their right mind. We could never do that. But the problem is that as we say that, we recognize that we do this all the time. We push people out of our minds and justify it later. Right? If we don't have to think about it, if we don't have to see these people, if we can just gloss over what's going on, then we can be fine and we can justify it in our own minds because fear is driving us to an irrational place that we can justify within ourselves. And we also surround ourselves by people who help us to justify this fear. Don't raise your hands right now, but I feel like we can all say that we've experienced this before. When we do this, when we allow fear to justify itself, we get in a cycle, okay? When we do this, we forget about grace entirely, okay? And I am not in any means talking down to the people here in the garrisons, okay? I am sure that there is a risk involved with this man. We can't just have this man around our children and say, oh, it's fine, you know. He's just, you know, playing, like we say, with like crazy dogs, uh, um, I understand that there's probably an inherent risk with this man being around. But what I'm trying to get to is a place in our minds where we do a similar thing with the people in our lives, but we forget about the grace that we ourselves receive. Are you with me? Because we don't want to give grace to people, we forget about the grace that we receive on a daily basis. The grace that we receive, because that's the thing is that we justify the wrongs that we do because of things that are happening exterior to ourselves, right? We justify treating someone a certain way because in our minds we've devised a way for that to be all right. But there's no grace in that. When we, when we put somebody on the outside, when we push somebody away, there's no grace in that because Jesus has the full right and full ability to do that to us, right? If Jesus wanted to put us on the outside, he would be justified, He would be justified to say, you have no part of me because evil is in and among you. You have no part of me. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? You can nod your heads if you're with me, all right? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus steps into complex situations and makes peace. People allow fear to make those same complex situations put things at an arm's distance. But Jesus steps into those situations and says, what can I do about that? What peace can I bring to the situation that that only I can bring? 
Thank God for Jesus. That's all I want to say, okay? Thank God for Jesus that he has the ability to do that because people are really bad at this. We talked in the very first week about the many messiahs, right? The Davids and the Sauls, they failed at being the messiah. And we have these people in our lives that we prop up as little miniature messiahs, but nobody's ever going to be able to do the same thing that Jesus was able to do. Jesus' presence casts out all fear. And if we are trying to be like Jesus, we need to live into that place too. And again, we're not going to be perfect at this. But recognizing the actions that he's doing in the midst of fear, in the midst of complex situations, we can emulate Christ. Okay, we're not done yet. Continue reading here in Luke 8, 38a. After all this has taken place, after Jesus heals this man, after all this discretion among the community, saying, please leave our area to Jesus, the man that he has just healed says this, or these are his actions. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Okay, he wanted to be around Jesus because, like I said, he was cast out from society. He had no voice, no equity among his society, but Jesus gave him a voice, and he wanted to be around that person who gave him a voice. He wanted to be around him. He begs to stay. Why? Because now he has equity. Now he has a voice. Now he has the ability to do and say things he was not able to do. Again, for a long time, he was out of his right mind. And Jesus delivers him back into that place of sanity. So he gets his voice back. And he begs him to go. Or excuse me. He begs to go with Jesus. And so we get all this, we wrap it up, and if I were Jesus, I'd say, come along, buddy. Like, be a part of my disciples, and we can do great things together. But what does he tell them to do? He gives them a job. With the voice he has been given, he is now given the responsibility to use it. Okay, so the question remains, where did Jesus go? We read this story, we have so many examples of what we could say in this space of where did Jesus go, but what I boil it down to is this. Jesus goes towards the disenfranchised. Jesus goes towards the disenfranchised, and you might be thinking, okay, I need to understand this word a little bit better. Disenfranchised just means this, someone who is deprived of some right, privilege, or voice. Okay? Okay? Let's say it together. Someone who is deprived of some right, privilege, or voice. And if we look at the story here in Luke, we see this man who has been chained, not only chained, but watched over, out, out of sight, out of mind. This is the epitome of disenfranchise. He has no voice. He has no equity. But Jesus gives him a voice. And he gives him equity. And he steps into that place and makes sure that not only does he have those things, but he has something to do with those things. Jesus steps into that place towards the disenfranchised. Before Jesus comes along, I imagine whatever kind of sanity this man had, he definitely didn't have any purpose. A man loses, a man or a woman loses their purpose, that's a really bad place to be. But Jesus not only gives this man a voice, but he gives him a purpose to go and to tell. He was an outcast, but now he's welcome. Right? He has a story to tell and something to say about it. And like I said, it would be easy just to bring him along, but Jesus recognizes the value of what this man now has. 
the value of having a voice in his community is so important that Jesus says, go and tell. Because like I said a few weeks ago, Jesus had a reputation of doing things and saying, don't tell anybody. Right? You with me? Jesus would heal somebody and say, don't tell anybody about this. He would, he would, you know, do all these miraculous deeds and say, don't tell anybody. But he goes to this man who does not have a voice and he says, tell everybody you know. That is giving voice. That is going towards the disenfranchised, and that is what Jesus does. So the, the question you should be asking, okay, great, Jimmy. What does this mean for me? We learn about Jesus, we see his actions, but what does this mean for me? I want you to think about the Oregon Trail one more time. Okay? We recognize that this was an arduous journey. A lot of people died, and I'm sure a lot of bad things happened along this way. With expansion comes a whole lot of people who probably didn't have the same rights as the people who are making the journey along the way. I recognize that. But the idea, this idea of having a better life was important, and they pursued it. Right? This is what we kind of landed on. The prospect of a better life was worth risking it all. When we look at the actions of Jesus going towards the disenfranchised, we see that and we want to emulate that. The question is why? Because for us, the prospect of eternal life is worth risking it all. Right? The prospect of eternal life is worth risking it all. And that's such a complex thing to say because... There's so much, there's so many layers to that because it gives you the responsibility to say, hey, I have to be a person who goes towards the disenfranchised. I have to go to those people who do not have a voice. But the problem is sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's going on up here, we don't even know who those people are. We look around the world and we have these glasses, these rose-colored glasses, as people say, and we don't see things as they actually are. We don't recognize who doesn't have a voice because we don't hear them in the first place. And that's a problem. It takes stepping outside and looking around and saying, who am I not hearing from? Who am I not surrounding myself with? Who do I lean on and who do I not lean on? I'm reading a book right now by Austin Channing Brown called, um, I, just, I just blanked on it. Black, Digni Black, Dignity, Black Dignity in a World of, of Whiteness. I think that's the name of the book. And she talked about a teacher that she had in school where they would read different newspapers they would read the Times, like a normal like, publication of whatever Times they were in, in the Hoy, H-O-Y, Spanish for today. And they would read the different versions of the exact same stories, and they would extrapolate what one newspaper is saying about a group of people versus another group of, uh, another group of journalists saying about the same group of people. And guess what? It was different. Because some people don't have the same voice as others, and that is not okay especially in the church. And unfortunately, the church is not clean. The church is not guiltless of not giving people a voice. And I want to say that there's probably a large portion of my life where I looked around and thought everything was okay. It's not. When we look around and we don't have voices, we don't know who we're not, who we're not hearing from, we're missing out on different stories. We're allowing the disenfranchised to stay disenfranchised. And that is something that we as the church need to pursue and go towards. A complex situation deserves a peaceful presence of Jesus, right? So when we look around at our, at our brothers and sisters of color 
in this country who have been systematically oppressed for a very long time, and we look around the church and say, it's not like that here. We can't have that because guess where the church is? It's inside the world. And if we're not being honest, we're missing a lot. We need to actively seek out the disenfranchised and see who we're not hearing from. And it doesn't just stop there. When I was thinking about this this week, I got into this mindset of why I got into youth ministry. The big reason why I got into youth ministry is because I felt like teenagers didn't have a voice in the church. And I probably wouldn't have said it that way when I first got into youth ministry, but that's what it was. I wanted teenagers to make sure that they knew that they're just as important you know, as the big, big people in big church. I wanted them to know that they're just as much part of the kingdom of God as anybody else. No matter you start your journey today or 50 years ago, you were part of the kingdom of God. And it's recognizing who is not being heard from, who is not being seen. Actively seek those voices and work together in the job that we're all pursuing to do. Seek out the disenfranchised as Jesus sought out the disenfranchised. Be willing to go where Christ calls you to go. I'm going to make a confession today that I did not want to make, okay? Over the summer, I'd equip David Hunzinger, did a great talk about um, discipleship. I think Denise was in there. And he talked about going to Waffle House. And he talked about Waffle House being the best place to have spiritual conversations because the people at Waffle House will talk to just about anybody. Right? You know what I'm talking about. And they've got problems. I say that as a joke because we all really got problems. But after I left that that discipleship um, training, I was like, I need to go to Waffle House. And I need to have a spiritual conversation. But guess what I haven't done yet? I haven't gone to Waffle House. And that's embarrassing to me. Now, I've talked to my wife about that. But now that I'm confessing it to you, I actually have to do something about it. But I see that as a place to go where it's like this could be a potential where God is calling me to go even though I'm scared to go. Even though I might be scared, I think that God might be calling me to go to Waffle House have a mediocre cup of coffee and talk to somebody about Jesus, possibly. You see what I'm saying? And I don't want to make too much light of this because I guarantee there are places in the back of your mind that you say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to have that conversation because it's going to be really difficult. It's going to make me uncomfortable. It could make them uncomfortable. But having that fear, remember what we talked about fear doing? It puts us in a box. It takes us away from where Jesus is calling us to go and allows Satan to have full control over your life. Let's stop that. Let's seek out the disenfranchised, seek out who does not have a voice, and bring Jesus into that conversation and that relationship to better serve our kingdom together. All right, that's where Jesus is going. And we need to follow those same actions together as a church. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for uh, this example that we've been given by Christ. That he goes into these situations and shows us how to be fearless. He shows us how to really seek out these complex situations and really seek out the disenfranchised, those who do not have a voice, and give them a voice and a story to tell. God, we recognize that we aren't that man but he has definitely given us a voice and a story to 
a story to tell, and I pray that we seek out voices, and I pray that we seek out stories for the betterment of this kingdom that we are all working towards. God, help us to recognize the blind spots. I, I prayed earlier that we need to be uncomfortable, bring discomfort into our lives. Help us to be uncomfortably aware of our blind spots, and God, help us to illuminate those spots in our lives. Help us to reach out and see who we're not talking to. Help us to reach out and see who we're not hearing from. And help us to be just partners together, doing the work of Christ in this world. So just let me pray. Amen. If you have any needs at all, this is the time. You know, we obviously make it, no, make it available for you to come forward. If you don't feel like coming forward, that's okay. But like I say every week, talk to somebody today if you've got something going on. If you want to be baptized, let's make that happen. If you are going through it, let's have a conversation. Come while we stand and sing.